And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Thursday stormy night all across the country. I wish everybody a happy holidays. I hope not too many of you are having travel nightmares, but if you are, maybe... This podcast can help you ignore your family and the general madness of the airport. It's time to talk about two of my basketball siren songs, two teams that no matter what, no matter how much they hurt their fans, no matter how many times they disappoint, no matter how many times they get injured at key moments, whatever it is, I can't quit them. I'll never quit them. One team, I think I feel like I have a healthy relationship. This first team, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. It's a problem. But here they come. As the song says, here come the Sixers. Here they come. Philadelphia, winners of six straight. Not even healthy yet. Tyrese Maxey is still out. 18-12. and The Philadelphia 76ers to help us digest them and where they rank in the East. The one and only Kevin Pelton. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I believe they are winners of one, two, three, four, five, Sixers. One, two, three, four, five, Sixers. 10, 9, 8, 76ers. It's the dumbest song, but it's the best song. It's, it's the best song. And if people don't know what I'm talking about, it's the song they play at the end of every Sixers win in Philadelphia. And it's it's called Here Come the Sixers. It's basically a Sesame Street song about basketball, and it's amazing. Um, and here they come. Here they come. Uh, I like to have you on to talk about Sixers because normally I have Spike Eskin and Mike Levin from the rights to Ricky Sanchez, and they're so they're so emotionally invested that they can, in the best possible way, go completely bonkers talking about the Sixers. And I need your cool, calming perspective on this team. They were in my inner circle of contenders before the season started. There were six teams in that inner circle. They were one. I asked everybody before the season. Why not the Sixers? I mean, why not other than James Harden's record of basically running for the exits in elimination games? But why not the Sixers? Then they came out and looked slow and disinterested, frankly arrogant, the way they started the season. Then Harden and Maxi got hurt, and this sort of scrappy Melton Milton backup skeleton crew came in, kept them afloat. Now Harden's back, looking okay, looking good. Not looking Houston good, not even Brooklyn good, but looking good. The supporting cast has stayed pretty damn productive. Tyrese Maxey is going to come back. Celtics. Celtics falling back to earth a little bit. I think they've lost four of six. Their offense is down big time. They've actually fallen out of the top spot in offensive efficiency. Bucks, just nobody talks about the Bucks. They were my pick to win the title. They're doing fine. How, how do we feel about the Sixers? You know, it's funny you say that because one of the things I did in preparation for this podcast, there was something I was maybe going to bring up and I wanted to see if it had been out there in the, the Sixers discussion. And so I was looking at Rich Hoffman's mailbag on The Athletic and it was like, wow, this is so much angst in this mailbag, like backup center angst, coaching angst, uh, starting lineup angst, all, all sorts of angst. And then my takeaway from this, and hopefully I'm going to say more revealing things over the course of this conversation Kind of feel like the Sixers are who we thought they were at the end of all of this. Yeah, the angst, I, I don't, I feel like, believe me, I, I pay special attention to Sixers angst. It's it's the best basketball angst there is. I feel like it's died down in the last two weeks in part because of how dominant Embiid has been and how fun that's been to watch. And DeAnthony Melton has been big. Tobias Harris is doing exactly what they want Tobias Harris to do. 
Uh, and Harden has come back and, and looked pretty good, and they're, they've strung off some wins. So I feel like the angst is the Doc angst has declined. The B-ball Paul Montrez Harrell angst. There's some angst that's just not worth it. That that's it's just not worth. If you're angry about Paul Reed versus Montrez Harrell versus PJ Tucker at the five, it's 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 worth getting a little angry about. It's not if you're typing a mailbag question to somebody subject line Doc Rivers is an idiot, Paul Reed rocks, like you need to reevaluate some parts of your life. You're just, um, you're just I, subtweeting uh guest John Hollinger right here. Or I yeah, I guess I I thought when you said well you can't just make Twitter jokes about the Sixers. It's too it's it's triggering. Twitter, Twitter, Sixer, you can't do it. Um I don't even know where I was going. I think the oh, I think the angst has, has declined a little bit and there's now I feel a building confidence of exactly what you just said of, hey, wait a second. We still have Harden and Embiid, two man game. It's not the most artful thing in the world, but Joel is clearly the guy. James knows Joel's the guy. If they get a switch, more often than not, the ball's going to go to Embiid at the nail, and it's not going to be hard in dribbling 17 times and taking a step back three while Joel stands early. Hey, it's just me, the dude who scores 50 every other game, seemingly over here, me. Um, and it's fine. By the way, it's fine for James Harden to do that a decent amount of time. The, the Sixers, I looked it up today, they're averaging 1.22 points per possession on Harden isolations. That's like beyond elite. That's amazing. It may not look great. It may frustrate Embiid. But in the right doses, I, I've given up on the Sixers offense ever looking good and flowing properly and involving Maxi at the appropriate level when he's on the floor with the two stars. Like, it's just not going to happen. And maybe that's okay. Maybe Embiid and Harden are just so good that they can play if not completely your turn, my turn, then something like it. And that's that's fine. And it, you know when it would really be fine if they could cut down the turnovers and, and make that into a very, very, at least we're going to get a shot up every single time, draw a ton of fouls. Like maybe that's okay. It doesn't have to look good, right? No, I mean, especially when, you know, the strength of this pairing and particularly, even though you talked about the pick and roll chemistry that they've developed, like the synergy between these two guys is their ability, shared ability to draw fouls and what that does to defenses. And for Embiid in particular, it, you know, he had a couple of rough games early in the season when he started slowly, but it's kind of hard for him, even when he shoots like six of 17, like some of these games, he's still going to put up points because he's getting 10 free throws a night. He's shooting 12 free throws a game. And that just, it, it, Puts, gives a really high floor to what kind of performance you have. It It's not very fun from a viewing perspective, but if you're trying to generate points efficiently, it's a pretty great setup. Um, it Indeed, it is. Oh, and and by the way, the other thing the free throws allow you to do is set your defense. And maybe we should have headlined with that. This is the number two defense in the NBA right now. Started off as just fast break, fast break, fast break does anyone care that the fast break no another fast break and all of us yelling about how embarrassing it was that the Sixers had zero transition defense teams were just running them off the floor and their transition defense is still bad if you look at the numbers it's still pretty bad it's it's just regular bad it's not horrendous bad it's bad but they're number two in defense and I know what you're going to say I know you got it loaded up you got it locked and loaded <laughs> you got it locked and loaded so just say it just say it because I know what it's going to be just say it just burst just burst my bubble yeah, opponents are shooting, what, 33% from three-point range? Opponents are shooting a league low, 32%. Does, any, does anything 
do, do you do you when you when you when you see a team that's playing well defensively, and you look up opponent three point shooting, and it's like twenty eight percent for this ten games or thirty two percent for the season, do you just sit back at your computer like, oh, <laughs> got him again? I'm not I like, can't wait to tell everyone it's just a <laughs> fluke. I'm not like happy about it. It's just yes, very you are. Funny, you are. You're happy about it. I mean, I am smiling at the moment. With the Knicks, you've been happy about it for two consecutive. You you couldn't wait when the Knicks went on an eight game winning streak to look up opponent three point shoot. You dropped everything. You you pulled over your car to the side of the road. So you know what? I bet those opponents are shooting twenty seven percent from three. Sure enough, you know it's funny. We we did this on the Hoop Collective. At the I know the that's why I'm and- saying it. And I, got, I was looking that up on the fly. I didn't know. It just is my sixth sense when a team goes on a run like this. Eh, probably some opponent, opponent three-point shooting involved in that because I've seen it so many times. It's, you know, uh, it's like Jeff Goldblum talking about chaos in Jurassic Park or something. Wow. 1994 <laughs> Jurassic Park. I don't know where that reference came The from. reason the Toronto Raptors are named the Raptors is because of Jurassic Park. Think about that. Boy, they're not very good, by the way. That's a different... Um, okay, so Sixers defense. Let's let's look at the fundamentals because they are number two in the league. Um, they force a ton of turnovers. They're, that's pretty much the strongest part of their defense. They, they allow a decent shot. They don't allow a lot of threes or a lot of shots at the rim. Some of their the good luck they're getting on threes is, is compensated to some degree by the fact that teams are killing them at the rim when they get there. Even with Embiid there, this is the first yes. season in Embiid's career where he is not having a negative effect on opponent shooting percentage at the rim, which to me doesn't pass the eye test. And it might just be a case of Embiid is one of those guys, when he decides to dial it up, it's very, very noticeable. And when he dials it up, I still think he's the same force defensively that he's always been. But in the aggregate data, it's not showing up. Um, I think this is, if it's not the number two defense, I don't see, it's, I think it's a good defense. They could certainly rebound better and foul less and all that, but I think they're, they're kind of a fundamentally pretty solid defense. The test comes obviously when Harden and Maxi are on the floor together, because those are just, they're two minuses on defense and there's just no way around it. Well, this is the thing I wanted to ask about, which is. Do we have to consider at this point keeping DeAnthony Melton in the starting lineup when Tyrese Maxey comes back? I mean, at least, you know, at the start is you're easing him in because DeAnthony Melton has been so good. He has been everything I think the Sixers could have hoped that he would be when they traded for him at the draft, you know, hitting 37% of his threes. Uh, a quality perimeter to defender to throw at opponent's best score on the perimeter to take those assignments off the plate of James Harden and off the plate of Tobias Harris, who was having to take those last year after the trade. And, you know, I think it's less about the whole we need to get the ball in Maxie's hand thing, hands thing, because you can make sure that there are minutes that he plays when Harden is not on the court either way. It's more about we're going to find easier ways to hide Maxi if we're playing him and Harden together against second units than if we're playing him against starting lineups. So my assumption has been Maxi as sixth man is too dramatic a change to realistically be made. That he's become too good, too prolific, that he, his agents, his people would, would not stand for it. And the team probably doesn't want to do it. I do think it's an idea that should be explored because Melton has been one of the great offseason acquisitions in the entire NBA. And it's not just the shooting and it's not just the defense. 
And it's not just the rebounding, which the Sixers badly need anyone but Embiid who can grab a rebound. And even it's rebound, not just even Embiid's defensive rebounds are down. Yeah, and it, and it's not just that they badly also needed someone. And this is what I called the Anthony Melton. He's the f-ed up guy. He comes in and he stuff up, and they need somebody like that. And not only that, my favorite thing about him with the Sixers is he's been a really sneaky connector for them in the half court. And what I mean by that is he's a good screener for Harden in pick and rolls, for Embiid in pick and rolls, and he'll screen and he'll roll and he'll catch it in open space and he'll make the right kick out pass over here, kick out pass over there. Um, He'll cut when his guy doubles Embiid in the post, catch and kick. Like he's just sort of keeping the machine moving. So I would would assume that whether that lineup ever starts, the so you're talking about Melton, Harden, Harris, Tucker, Embiid. Whether it starts or not, that lineup has to become a big part of their team. Similarly, I would flip the question around to you. Is it worth considering starting Melton over Tucker or closing with Melton over Tucker? You lose size, and in some matchups, that's going to be a non-starter for them. But P.J. Tucker, man, he's just a statue. They're not using him like the Heat did when he would screen and hand off. He's just a statue. He never shoots. He's giving them some... Offensive rebounding, Melton can do that. Melton just gives you so much more like uh, pound, pound you in the face. And whether they start that lineup or not, because both Harris and Tucker are fours, right? And you alluded to it before, Harris having to defend wings is out of position for him a little bit. This would correct that, playing the three guards with, with him and Joel. Whether it starts or not, I think that lineup has to become a big part of their team too. That lineup's played four possessions together. The whole season, that would be Maxi, Melton, Harden, Harris, Embiid. Your lineup, the one you mentioned, is plus 52 in 117 minutes, and I believe it's their most played lineup. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely something I thought about in terms of a closing lineup. I didn't think about it as a possibility to to start just because it, it seems you know, a little on the small side on the perimeter. But, you know, Harden has always been more effective defending bigger players anyway, so that's kind of a benefit of it. Uh, I, I think definitely to close situationally if it's if it's a case where the opponents are small on the perimeter you know there's not that LeBron Giannis type guy that you're going to need PJ Tucker to match up against I I do want to defend PJ Tucker a little bit and his his you know, 8% usage rate is it 8% I think it was 7 or 8 it's it's between Look, you, those you you sign me for a day I'm retiring <laughs> with the usage rate of higher than 8% <laughs> I'm just saying because the Milwaukee Bucks did win a championship with PJ Tucker at that usage rate. And one thing that, you know, stood out watching the first half of last night's uh, Philly Detroit game was, you know, he snuck in on the offensive glass a couple of times. And oh, that's something God, that he was doing so badly. Oh. Very much so. And that was something he did in Miami that has carried over. And especially if he's not going to be pulling the trigger on those corner threes, then you need him to be kind of a threat, you know, in the dunker spot, uh, sneaking in on the offensive glass, doing things like that, doing something because the, if the alternative is D'Anthony Melton, I mean, it's not your nickname, but, uh, the Grizzlies broadcast, his more traditional nickname is Mr. Do something. They're good at coming up with nicknames. Maybe they stole. I, I don't, I never know what nicknames guys have in college, but, uh, Brevin Knight calling David Roddy, big body Roddy. It's oh, just, yeah. is, was that a college thing too? I don't. I don't know about that one. I wasn't. I wasn't catching a ton of Colorado State games. I did watch Melton a lot at USC. I don't remember hearing it there. Big body Roddy. I like David Roddy. 
I actually I, I like David Roddy probably a little bit too much for considering he's a rookie. Um, I don't know. Only this podcast would go on a thirty second David Roddy, big body Roddy, <laughs> tangent. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Sixers Pistons you mentioned I watched that game too you know what I liked about that game I liked that the Sixers and this is part of the when it's go time it can be your turn my turn sometimes particularly if 65% of the turns are Embiid and it's not a 50-50 split with Embiid and Harder maybe 58% of the turns I don't know are Embiid it, it, it can be that sometimes but against the Bucks or the Celtics or whoever you want to put out there as an elite defense it can't be like that every time you just need a little more variety than that and one of the things I liked in that Pistons game was they've clearly made a concerted effort to push the ball and not just on turnovers and not just on rebounds after makes they were pushing it and it doesn't have to be like fancy fast break showtime Lakers they had one possession people can look it up it was the third quarter I think with like five and a half minutes left it was off a made Detroit Pistons free throw off a free throw Made. James Harden inbounded the ball to Shake Milton. Probably two-thirds of the way to half court. Shake Milton took one dribble and threw the ball ahead to Joel Embiid in the high post. Joel Embiid got the ball with his back to the basket and 21 seconds left on the shot clock after a made free throw. So in three seconds, Joel Embiid was posting up. No one was behind him. That's the benefit. There was no back line of defense because the back line wasn't there. Shake Milton threw in the ball, sprinted, dead sprint down the half court as like a cutter. Joel found him, layup. Just like five more of those every game makes a gigantic difference. And I think it was clear they made a concerted effort to like, can we just get out of the mud a little bit? And I think that's important. Even stuff like, this is an old Houston trick. When you're bringing the ball up after a make, Instead of walking, James Harden, jog, and someone will be there for you at half court to set a pick. That gets you going downhill, so we're getting off on a fast note. Just like a little more of that stuff, I think, makes a big difference for them. 
And the the steals that they're forcing, I think, are helpful in that regard, too. I mean, they had, in the first half of that game alone, three backcourt steals. Two from Matisse Thibel, who was kind of written off before the season because of the lack of shooting and hasn't, you know, wasn't a fa- big factor in the playoffs last year. But they're actually playing great with Thibel on the court. And one of the interesting questions that they are going to have when Maxi comes back is, how do you find minutes for all these perimeter guys because Milton needs to play. Mm-hmm. Daniel House Jr. has kind of been a disappointment, I think. But so he may be the guy who phases out of the rotation. But. I forgot, by the way, that they got dinged for tampering on Daniel House Jr. too, <laughs> because I was like, wait yeah. a second. So the Knicks got the Knicks got dinged for the Brunson tampering, which is the most obvious tampering maybe in the history of the league. They got one second round pick. It's like, oh my god. I hope the Knicks can recover from this blow. They've lost a 2025 second round pick. I hope Leon is Leon Rose sleeping. Has anyone checked on him? Like it's such a harsh, harsh penalty. And I don't really care either way. It's just like just do nothing. Then if that's going to be the penalty, and I was like, wait, didn't the Sixers get two for PJ Tucker, two second round picks? Then I was like, oh, it wasn't just PJ Tucker. It was Daniel House. They tampered on Daniel House Jr. No offense to Daniel House Jr. He's got to be the worst NBA player to ever have been tampered on behalf of. It, ha- it just has to be. By the way, people forbid. Remember the Daniel House Jr. bubble transgression? Google that. <laughs> I like Daniel House Jr. He's a good player. You So one way to get minutes for Matisse Stiebel is to trade him to another team that will play him. And if they're trying to upgrade their team now, I think that's the obvious vehicle to do it. I just don't know how much juice he has. And I know what the numbers say, KP. I know what they say. I really just don't like it when he and Embiid are on the floor at the same time. I just hate watching Embiid post-ups where they're playing four on, they're playing three on, he's playing one on five, you know, because Matisse Thibel is on the floor in the dunker spot. Nobody's guarding him. I just, I don't like it. Um, We'll get back to the Sixers in a minute, but I I did want to ask you, uh, what do you see with the Celtics? Are you concerned at all? They've lost twice to Orlando. Uh, a tough end to their road trip um, at Clippers, at Warriors. And then, you know, you think they're going to get, okay, if chalk up the Orlando stuff is a little weird, whatever, Tatum missed a game, blah, blah, blah. Here comes Indiana. Like, they'll get well. And then Indiana comes in and puts up 70 in the first half on them. Um, anything going on there that concerns you? When you look at the shot quality data, I, I'm significantly reassured because if you look at the three games in a row that they've lost at home, they are getting, once you account for the, the players taking these shots in addition to where they're from type of shot, location of nearby defenders, the best shots in the league in that span and underperforming them by a massive amount. Two of those three games, their last three losses, have been among the eight worst shot-making performances relative to player ability by any team in any game this season. And It's not that dramatic when you go back over the entire six-game stretch where they've lost five out of six, but it's pretty substantial underperformance. They weren't necessarily due for this, given the fact that they were massively overperforming from three-point range, you know, as they got off to this best offense in NBA history start. But they were due to to start making fewer threes than they had, and it's just kind of evened out more quickly than I think we would have anticipated. Yeah, I'm not... I'm not overly concerned because A, some regression was coming. B, you've had Tatum miss a game here. Smart missed the game last night. They've had weird guys in and out of the lineup. And I do think, and I talked about this with Brian Scalabrini a few weeks ago, I was interested in 
incorporating Robert Williams III again, as much as they need him, and he looks fantastic, by the way, um, they've been playing almost the entire season with five three-point shooters on the floor at the same time. And now that's no longer going to be the case. And I think that was going to be an inevitable adjustment period. That said, the shot data is, is, is as you're describing, is correct. I've looked it up too. Their turnovers are creeping up a little bit. Not not super alarming, but, you know, just just watch it. And their shots at the rim are coming down. And as wonderfully as they were shooting threes and as well as that works, I just, I'm just i a big believer in the, the threes are going to go hot and cold. I, I, they'll be fine either way. I just like to get, a, get me a little more juice at the rim and at the foul line. That's all. Yeah, I mean, those are, like we talked about with free throws for Embiid earlier, those mitigate some of the streakiness in outside shooting. Yeah, Philly, um, just 17th in offense so far. Even with Embiid on the floor, they're kind of an average, slightly above average offense. As usual, they are plus a lot with Embiid on the floor and minus a little bit with Embiid off the floor. Um, They should be better offensively uh, than this. Anything stand out to you there, like where we could see improvement from the Sixers? Because 17th on offense or average, whatever you want to call it, is disappointing, I think, when they're at full strength. Yeah, especially because you you mentioned Tobias Harris in the intro. Like, he's delivering, I think, exactly the kind of season you'd want from Tobias Harris in this role. And it may be hard to tell because he's averaging the same number of points per game from last season. But, you know, making threes at the best rate of his, or shooting threes at the highest rate of his career, making them at a high percentage. Uh, you know, terrific efficiency. Like everything is there from Harris. I mean, the loss of Maxi is probably a factor there. This is a team that really has, you know, four plus offensive players. So if you take one of those guys out of the mix, uh, you know, that's a that's a pretty and, significant drop off. And Maxi, you know, I talked about pace and kind of injecting some random, you know, life into the offense. He's the guy to do. He's the guy to be like, hey, come run with me. Just just outlet the ball to me. I'll create baskets by myself. He's that ingredient for them. Yeah, and you you put him back in the mix. I think they're probably a little weaker than they have been defensively, but better than they have been offensively. I think they probably get closer to, if not that top ten on both sides of the ball. That you know, I think I think we kind of expected coming in. Uh, interesting. Other thing, there are a couple of hardened things that are interesting to monitor. Number one, since he came back from injury on December fifth, he's back to getting to the rim in terms of percentage of his shot attempts that are coming at the rim at the rate he was getting there in Houston, basically. And at the beginning of the season, he had taken a lot of long twos compared to his career average, and all of that had come out of his restricted area shots. Those things are back to normal now, which is interesting. That's encouraging. We'll see if it if it stands up. Um, no one is talking about the James Harden player option for next season. I, it seems like kind of a big deal to me that James Harden could be a free agent after this season. I mean, the part that they weren't busted on was, well, boy, it was convenient that James Harden ended up agreeing to take precisely the amount of salary that allowed you to sign P.J. Tucker and Daniel House Jr. using those exceptions that would that hard capped you. Uh, I, I think that element, the fact that there has been, you know, he, he showed a willingness to work with the organization to do what's best for the team probably makes people a little less concerned about that one. Seems like a big deal to me. Seems like a big deal to me. Uh, What did you make of the report in The Athletic about Zach Levine and the Bulls not seeing eye to eye? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to have that reporting. I 
I think it's not surprising to the extent that it's been a rough go for Chicago and people get frustrated. It's it's easy for people for players to coexist and you know to sacrifice a little bit when things are going well as they were much of last season. When things are going as poorly as they have been up until that that game winning shot from Ayo Desunmo on Wednesday night, like that's when I think fingers start to be pointed and people start to be wondering about what's going on with my role and, and that sort of thing. I do think it's interesting that when you think about, as we've all been thinking about since they built this team, basically, okay, well, if it doesn't work, how do you pivot? And the natural inclination is to say, well, Levine's the youngest of these three sort of all-stars. They'll, they, by the way, they'll, they, they've all made the all-star team. You've heard that they've all made the all-star team. I don't know if you know the Bulls have three all-stars, three all-stars, three all-stars, they, three all-stars, three all-stars. They were referred to as the big three. Yeah. All three of them. Not the three alphas. There's only one three alphas in Chicago Bulls history. <laughs> only one. Um, so, you know, Levine's 27, DeRozan's 33, Vooch is 32. Naturally, you sort of trade the older guys and see what you can get and rebuild around the youngest guy. And then, like, sometimes I'm guilty of it. My brain kind of stops there because there are 29 other teams to track and they all have big questions, blah, blah, blah. I do think the idea of, well, he might be the youngest. He also has the biggest and longest contract that may be viewed by some percentage of the league as an okay to not desirable contract. What if we actually go the other way and trade that player for other veterans who maybe fit better around DeRozan or other young players or young players and picks. It's You can trade that kind of player for lots of different things and clean up our cap sheet and just sort of, okay, we tried. It didn't work out. You get a new home somewhere else. There, there That is an interesting alternative pivot if they choose to pivot. And so far, I don't, I, I don't think they're, they're there yet. But it is it is interesting to think about, and I don't know what kind of trade value Zach Levine. Zach Levine makes forty million next year, forty three in twenty twenty four twenty five, forty six in twenty five twenty six, and has a forty nine million dollar player option in twenty six twenty seven. And it would be cute to say, well, he's definitely going to opt into that. He might not. He may very well not opt into that. Actually, it may be more likely that he opts out of it if he's still playing well and signs a new deal when the salary cap is two hundred million, or maybe there's an upper spending limit how did that upper spending limit boy oh someone they had a whole set of meetings at the nba headquarters all right guys we can't call it a hard cap we've brought in don draper from sterling cooper (laughs) seven other pr firms they we've all told them pitch us other words it's like naming the newest pharmaceutical drug like ribazole Bill I was going to say, maybe, it's maybe bring like, in the Grizzlies broadcast crew. Yeah, anyway. Um, and did anything, did you find, are there any Zach Levine destinations that you would find interesting? I don't like most of the ideas that I, I ran through. So, I, I mean, obviously the Lakers are going to come up because Zach Levine is a star and played his college basketball in LA. Uh, Miami is a team that makes sense in terms of loves to chase stars better defensively than offensively have kind of the infrastructure to hide him. But at the same time, 
isn't Tyler Hero kind of more or less the same player? And hasn't Tyler Hero probably been better this season? I so was about to say, you still you you could Tyler Hero twenty one points a game, six rebounds, four assists, forty six percent, forty one percent from three. I mean, what is it that exciting for me to trade Tyler Hero for Zach Levine? Is that doing anything for me? No, for older and on a on a longer and more expensive contract. Yeah, I mean, he's similar usage rates. Hero's been more efficient. Toronto also falls in that category of just a team that needs offensive juice. And I, I mean, maybe if you were hoping to, you know, you wanted to trade Fred Van Vliet because you thought he might leave and you didn't want to necessarily take a big step backwards, you know, maybe it's a Van Vliet, Trent package. Those guys go somewhere else potentially, or some of them stay in Chicago. But I don't know if I know what the point of that is for the Raptors. I think if you're going to move those guys, you probably got to focus on younger yourself. Uh, the Clippers, I think, maybe are the most interesting fit on the Whoa. board. Yeah. Didn't see that one coming. Because, I mean, you could, again, plenty of hiding places to hide him defensively. Could use a little more offensive juice. Uh, fits the timetable with their stars, even you know, even a little bit younger, but I don't think they have enough to get him unless Chicago is really convinced. Like, you know, it's kind of like the Norm Powell trade last year where the value of the trade is mostly the salary aspect of it rather than what you're getting in return. I mean, the two that I think are the most realistic outside of the Lakers, the Knicks, I mean, a, a team that, you know, has a lot of minus defenders for a team that's better defensively than offensively. So maybe Levine tilts you too far in that direction, but certainly an interesting possibility. And he could play very well with, with uh, Jalen Brunson. The two of them could share the ball. And then the, I think the most interesting one is well, what about the Mavericks? If you're looking for, a, I mean, he's not the ideal one, a to Luka Doncic in terms of so much of his value, again, is offensive and with the ball in his hands. But one of the reasons Levine has struggled this year He's less efficient than league average on self-created shots with more than two seconds of touch time, according to the NBA advanced stats data. He's still 10% better than average on you know the, the catch and shoots and plays with less than two seconds of touch time. So maybe you put him in Dallas, it becomes a much more efficient fit for him. They're on my list. The Knicks are also on my list. The problem with the Mavs is the same problem you outlined with the Clippers, which is, well, what, what players am I getting back that I'm, that I'm excited about? Um, if I'm Chicago, the Knicks certainly have picks and young players. We, I mean, we just saw the movie with Donovan Mitchell. I don't know, man. They're kind of well. That's an interesting one. You don't want to get too convinced by a ten game stretch that you've figured out something about yourselves or turned a corner or have the, all the pieces that you need. I've just never been a big Levine guy, I, and and I know two years ago I thought he deserved to make All Star. Um, his shooting was just outrageous. Um, well, was a deserving all-star. I just, the defense, the defense hasn't come along. Off ball, it's a train wreck. His decision-making with the ball hasn't come along. Every post-entry is a complete adventure. I just, I, he's good. I just, I'm not, I don't know if I'm upending my my franchise for him. Um, I thought that was interesting, though. And I and I do think it's a big, it's a big couple of month, months for the Bulls. It's also a big month for the Hawks. Our old colleague Chris Haynes reported today a little bit of Trey Young, um, rival executives saying that Trey Young could um, be the next starter requested trade. Well, rival executives say a lot of things. Um, I don't necessarily care too much about that, but 
Bobby Marks and I did kind of spend a little time last week just toying with fake Trey Young trades because, and this was before Travis Schlenk um, was shifted to an advisory role this week. Uh, we talked about this. It, there's a lot of noise about the Hawks, and none of it has really been good. And the play on the floor has only been so-so. And I know they've been injured. John Collins has been injured. Bogdanovich has been injured. Murray's been injured. They've had injuries. Capella's injured now. Uh, I just know, let's put it this way, the Travis Slink news did not surprise me. It did not surprise a lot of people in the NBA. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of stuff there. And you can chalk up that Chris Haynes report as like, that's just more stuff that doesn't come out of thin air. And... I do really like my Trey Young for Carl Towns challenge trade. I think this, what about a Trey Young for Zach Levine challenge trade? The Hawks, the Hawks probably think Trey Young is in a different stratosphere than Zach Levine. And frankly, in terms of playoff achievements, he has been. And you can certainly make a case for like, the the question with Trey Young, if he goes on the market is, well, wait, is Trey Young a superstar at this point? Because you know I don't think that he's necessarily been failed by the team around him in the way that a lot of these superstars who ask trades often are. Like he has to take some of the blame if the Hawks are a playoff disappointment, which is many months down the road. But, you know, was what, what Haynes was talking about is precipitated in this. At the same time, you look at, you know, his extension is going to be really reasonable as the cap rises. He's going into the prime of his career. All those reasons, I think, would make him, you know, still a player that would get pursued at that level. You know, even if there are some questions about, again, his, his role in Atlanta underwhelming. Okay, two more quick ones, and then we'll stop. Um, I wanted to, to just sort of take your temperature. as we, We're not that far from the halfway point. We're talking all East right now. We talked about the Sixers, so let's zoom out. I want to I play who does Kevin Pelton believe can reasonably win the Eastern Conference this year? I assume Boston and Milwaukee are yeses. <laughs> yes, that's the same. Does stuff. Kevin Pelton believe the Philadelphia 76ers can win the Eastern Conference this year? Yes, I, I think there's a path to it. I I don't think it's super likely. It's interesting. The projection systems are much higher on the Sixers than I would have guessed. That they have them as, I think BPI has them ahead of Milwaukee, which is uh, truly shocking. But like even 538 has them as having a reasonable chance of winning the title this year. And, and that seems a little aggressive to me. I think there's a path to it. But to go back to you know something you talked about at the start of the season with the Sixers, it's, it's really... In, it really is depends on James Harden being able to play at an elite level in the playoffs. And he's played well this season, but I don't know if he's convinced me that that's in the cards. I had them in my inner circle. But I guess my litmus test for this question is like, if we get to the finals and they're in it, are you going to be like, well, lots of crazy things must have happened for that to occur. I think they can win the East still. I picked Milwaukee to win the championship. I think Boston's better than Philly, but I don't think it's unreasonable for Philly to win the East. And you talk about Harden, and I agree with you. Look, if Harden craps the bed in elimination games or big games or 2-2 games or whatever the biggest, highest stakes games in, if there's another 2-for-11 with eight turnovers or the ball didn't come back to me, I took no shots in the second half, they're not going to win. Just not going to happen. But as much as we talk about him, I, I just think the more cracks he gets at it, we have not yet seen a monster Embiid playoff run. We have not seen an Embiid playoffs in any season from start to finish that has matched what he's done in the regular season. And just in terms of relative production to other players, he hasn't been the same guy. If he gets enough cracks at it and he's healthy and he doesn't get elbowed in the face and break an orbital bone or fall on his wrist. And by the way, in that Detroit game, he tried a chase down block 
when they were up 20 in the fourth quarter. Dude, dude, Joel Embiid, no chase down blocks when you're up 20 in the fourth quarter. If he can if 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 those kind of things don't happen, he's going to have a he breaks through the sort of postseason wall run in him. And that alone is enough for me to have them here. Okay, next one. Can the Cleveland Cavaliers win the East? I mean, the oh, Cleveland Cavaliers. No doubt. They have the best point differential in the NBA right now. Should they and hang they a banner for that? The point well, differential? Look, but they haven't played an extremely easy schedule. Like they beat Boston twice. They just beat the Bucks last night. There's no reason to rule them out right now. I mean, obviously the youth is a factor. The fact that they haven't been in the playoffs uh, it, with this group, Donovan Mitchell has plenty of playoff experience, but I, again, I think you have to put them. I still have them a tier below Boston and Milwaukee, just because again, we've seen that in the playoffs, how that works. But I, I think they're number three and I think they have a very legitimate chance of winning the East. I just must be underrating them. It, it must be that my brain they're so young and inexperienced that I, I, I'm I, like, is Jared Allen, is he actually ready for this? Is Evan Mobley, as much as I love Evan Mobley, is he really ready for this? Do I trust their bench? Do I trust that Rubio is going to come back healthy enough and, and Rubio-ish enough to give them real time? But Donovan Mitchell's played like an MVP candidate. I mean, in this year, he's not an MVP candidate because the top five guys are just insane. But he's been that good. And those two guards, man, they're just a handful and those two big guys are monsters defensively. It feels to me like they fall right on the border to below my weight that something crazy here happened line. But that may be just like my brain is slow to accept a young new team at this level. Are you ready? Can the Brooklyn Nets reasonably win the Eastern Conference? I I still have them outside that line. I mean, they passed the any chance rule, but I, I, I would want to know what had happened. Not necessarily, you know, obviously Durant could carry them through three rounds of the Eastern Conference playoffs. But to me, the question is still, can we see it from Ben Simmons in a postseason setting? And it's been awesome. I, I want the best for Ben Simmons. It's been awesome to see him doing some of the things that we thought he could do in Brooklyn as a connector, as a versatile player. But also in the month of December, in 120 minutes, he has not made a free throw in four attempts. And I feel like something like that is is going to be an issue in a postseason setting. I'm not ready to answer my own question yet. <laughs> I'm just not. Should we do the, um, was Toronto, uh, did Toronto make a mistake not going all in for Durant thing? Like, that's becoming a thing now because Durant is playing like the best player in the world. The Nets are winning and Scotty Barnes is going like one for 11 and not playing well on defense. And there's this, even Doug Smith, who's a very affable guy, wrote this column today about how Scotty Barnes has been a disappointment his rookie season. He doesn't work as hard as he should. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that was in the column, basically. There's been a lot of Scotty Barnes angst. And we're now transitioning to the, uh, the, the mockery that Danny Ainge got for not putting his young players in to get Kawhi Leonard or Jimmy Butler or Paul George over and over again, clinging tenaciously to Jalen Brown. It's starting to spill over to Masai Ujiri now. Like, dude, Scotty Barnes? You wouldn't trade Scotty Barnes for Kevin Durant? Really? Let's posit that that's the case, right? Let's posit that that was a stance that Toronto decided that they were going to take. And we all talked. The first day Durant demanded a trade, I was on NBA Today and I said, the first phone call I make if I'm Sean Marks is the Toronto Raptors. That's the very first phone call I make. Because they had 
a great young player in a reasonable nucleus where they could have traded out of it, brought Durant in, and had enough to win, which is a very tough needle to thread. So how does that, where are you on that now? So I think the biggest difference from those Danny Ainge situations is those guys all got traded. Kevin Durant didn't get traded. And part of the question here, and maybe this is hindsight bias in my case, were the Nets ever actually all that serious about trading him over the summer? Or was this always the outcome that they wanted? Well, because... So this is this is this is when the debate gets boring because the people want to make the debate. Well, the Raptors wouldn't put Scotty Barnes in. The Raptors would have had to put Scotty Barnes, probably Anunoby, maybe another core player. Like there was not going to be. It wasn't just Barnes and Flotsam for Kevin Durant. That's not what it was going to be. The other thing I'll say is similar to the Jalen Brown Kawhi Leonard thing. When you snapshot these debates at a moment when. The Raptors are hoisting the Larry O'Brien trophy and the Celtics are in the we didn't get Anthony Davis shambles. It looks really, really bad. Two years later, when the Celtics are in the finals up 2-1 and everyone's ready to crown their ass, it doesn't look really bad. When you spot it, spotlight this one, Durant is laying the world on fire. Scotty Barnes is struggling. The Raptors are struggling. The Nets are winning. It looks really bad. Flashback four months ago, well, it's like Kevin Durant hasn't played more than 55 games in four years. He's 30-something. He seems to kind of grow unhappy wherever he goes. Like, there were these real questions. Some of those questions could pop up again tomorrow. Scotty Barnes, I don't know why. I just don't know how many times you're going to have to live this where a, 21, a guy who just turned 21 is not making the giant year two mega leap everyone assumes he's going to make. And it's now... Well, he might just be a one-time all-star. He's a bust. Like, I don't. My projection of Scotty Barnes long-term hasn't really changed because of thirty games as yours. I think it was a little lower in the first place because I wasn't as convinced about the mid-range shooting that we saw last season. Like, you know, he was such a poor outside shooter in college, which is part of the reason that I wasn't as high on him as I should have been going into the draft. So I, I think this is actually more like what I would have expected from Scotty Barnes two years into his career if you take away the rookie season and the expectations that that set. So it, it maybe hasn't affected it as much from that standpoint as it has people who got really high. I mean, I think that's like Tatum was the ultimate example of this. He had that playoff run his rookie season where they got to the conference finals. And then year two, it was what's wrong. Why hasn't he made the leap? Why isn't he all-star already? Then year three, he was great. And year four, they took a step back. And, you know, they year three, they made the conference finals. Year four, they took a step back. And year five, like you can't ride the roller coaster so much with some of these young players. Anthony Edwards is the other guy that that's happening to this season. Had that great playoff series against Memphis. And people thought, well, that's who he is. That's the floor that he's going to start with start from next season and improve from at age 21 or whatever he is and it's like no actually he wasn't quite at that level the whole regular season and development is not linear and every time he has nine assists in a game all the wolves people are like yeah the leap the leap is happening that's three good pat and it's like you know there's just beware the three of 16 with seven turnovers game is coming around the corner and then that'll be followed up with the five of 15 it doesn't always happen that way um, do you have any holiday wishes, Kevin Hilton? Is there a gift that you really want to get? Is there something on your list, your holiday list that you really want? Not, not, not specifically. No, I mean, I, I feel like I've, I've got what I need. So I'm just excited to spend time with more family this year than the last couple of years, which would be nice. You know what I wanted? I was asked by my loved ones, what do you want? 
number one, I want a nap, but that's <laughs> not that the, the only material good that I could think of is that I want a salad spinner. I, that's the only thing I ask for a salad spinner. It's a very, adult, I don't know. I don't know wish. if it, I don't know if it's me or lettuce or hydration. If you ask me to make a salad, I could wash the lettuce at eight in the morning. Spend 10 minutes of every hour for the next 12 hours drying the lettuce, and it would never dry. I don't know how anyone dries. I don't know how lettuce gets dry after you watch it. Wash it. I don't understand. I can't do it. So I'm, I'm getting a salad spinner. Well, there you go. That sounds Because everyone complains my salads are too soggy, and I won't have it anymore. <laughs> Kevin Pelton has a great column up on ESPN today. Um Going through the muck of the West uh, that I'm going to talk about, Adam Morris of the uh, of DNVR Sports within a second. Great column. Everything Kevin does is great. I will see you soon, my friend. Thanks for uh, popping on. Yeah, happy holidays. Happy Festivus to everyone listening to this when it comes out. Happy Festivus. Festivus is the 23rd? The 23rd, yes. All right. We're going to air some grievances and have some feats of strength. <laughs> Kevin Pelton, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. For the ones who get it done. Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Let's transition to my other NBA siren song. A team, a franchise, and a player I will never be able to kick no matter what. Sort of the opposite of Philly, which is my my previous siren song that I have really little faith in. And this team, I have more faith in. They actually have made the conference finals. The Denver Nuggets, 19-11, first in the Western Conference, about to get Michael Porter Jr. back after a weirdly kind of prolonged absence from a heel injury. Jamal Murray slowly but surely making his way back from a long time out. My favorite person to talk Denver Nuggets basketball with would be Nikola Jokic. My second favorite person to talk Nuggets basketball with would be Adam Morris of DNVR Sports. How are you, sir? I'm good. Always coming in second to Jokic, though, I feel. Well, look, if you're going to send a whole crew of people to Serbia to do a documentary on the guy in the history of basketball in the former Yugoslavia, you are going to come in second to that guy. Yeah. Happens a lot. And I'm not the only one, apparently, that comes in second to him. So I guess I'll just join the club. Uh, and yeah, and of course they share, you know, these my two Siren Song teams share all-time great centers who jostle for the MVP every season, including this season. Are you opting out of the Jokic MVP debate? Are, are people in Denver just like, he's won two, we don't care anymore, we're, we're out, we're out on the whole thing? I was out last year, to be honest with you. Like, I just did too toxic, too annoying. Just let it play out, see what happens. I will say, I was talking to somebody today, and they made a strong point, which is to make it hard on Jokic to win a third one is actually a sign of respect. 
you know, Michael could have been an MVP seven times. LeBron could have been an MVP seven times. And there's this understanding that you have to go above and beyond. And I, maybe it's fair, maybe it's not, but I kind of like the idea of, Hey, we don't, there's players greater than Nicola who had to extra do extra credit to earn a third one in a row. So I kind of, I guess I can stick with tradition and say, you know what, if he has to do extra credit, so be it. It's bird Russell and Wilt. That's the list. That's the MVP three P list. That's what we're Uh, talking about. And look, I have my, my Friday column probably will come out by the time people listen to this. I have a line in there on Jokic that says, Hey, look, 25, 25, 11 and nine. He's shooting 62%, 68% on twos. Like that's a joke. The nuggets are plus 12 per 100 possessions with him on the floor. Minus 14 with him off the floor. Leads almost literally every advanced statistic. He's number one. The, yeah. The raw a, one too. The plus 12.8, I think is number one in the NBA. Like just raw. When you're on the court, do you win your minutes? I think that is also number one. Yeah. The, as, as I've said this before with regards to Jokic, there's two kinds of like the on-off monsters. There's the on-off monster where the team is just okay when that person's on the floor and they fall to complete right. pieces of nothingness when he's off the floor. And then there's the one that really does merit MVP consideration. It's not a fake split. It's not a split that's just about the weakness of your bench. It's the one where elite on the floor, like yeah. the point differential would be better than any team in the NBA on the floor right. and bad off the floor. And that's Jokic. And here's what I write in the column. Like, if you don't want to vote for Jokic for the third straight MVP, all I'm saying is start right now 30 games into the season preparing a better argument than I didn't want to vote for him for a third MVP. The argument could be Kevin Durant's amazing, Joel Embiid's amazing, Giannis is amazing, but like that argument is not good enough. I didn't I didn't feel like it. Didn't feel right. Like that's not a real argument. That's a feeling, and you shouldn't vote with your feelings. Okay, the Denver Nuggets. Not a lot of talk about the Denver Nuggets this year. Just kind of quietly motoring along. Nineteen and eleven beat Memphis by fifteen or so the other night to move into first in the West. Middling point differential. A lot of close wins. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, kind of still waiting on the Jamal Murray thing. Kind of still waiting on the Porter thing, and. Uh, I think the biggest reason why there has been a lot of Nuggets talk, other than all the Nuggets talk is Jokic talk. There's no Nuggets talk. It's all True. Jokic talk. Yeah. They're third in offense. Great. 24th in defense. And they are 24th in defense despite, I think, what most people consider an average to below average defender and Michael Porter Jr. being out of their starting lineup and being replaced by a very strong defender in Bruce Brown. And that lineup, which you and I talked about in the offseason, previewing this team, the sort of all-defense lineup around Murray and Jokic, we were excited about that lineup to close games. That lineup has been absolutely as advertised. It's plus 57 in 269 minutes. Um, And so here we are in like year five of the existential question. How do you build a championship-level defense around Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, and Michael Porter Jr.? They've tried everything. And as I want to talk with you about, in that Memphis game the other night, it was one of my sneaky favorite Nuggets games of the last five years because they actually did try everything, including some strategies they rarely try that I've been calling on them to try. So what's the answer, Adam? Is that the answer? Just try lots of different stuff? What's the answer? So I think there's some interesting things that are going on here. You mentioned the just to kind of set the table, 
number one, and you could take these and say they're meaningful or completely meaningless, Zach. I don't know the answer to that. Denver is currently number one in clutch defense, and this has been a stat that has been true of them pretty much for most of the Jokic era. You mentioned the point differential is not great. They seem to be a team that is just two points better than whoever they play. If it's the worst team in the NBA, they're two points better. If it's the best team in the NBA, they're two points better. Um, and they are a team that plays with their food, rarely gets up 20. And when they do rarely sustains that in large part, because they just take the foot off the, the gas pedal that, or they up, take, or they take Jokic out of the game. Or they, they, I mean, we, we do have to talk about that later. Like the eternal yeah. struggle of, do we need six guys on the floor when Jokic rests? Like, why are they so terrible all the time, no matter who they play? But anyway, that that's it's an, a it is story. an interesting thought experiment, but before we even get there, just thinking about Denver defensively. I'm not convinced, and I think they were 28th a week ago in defense, like even worse. Yes, they were. I, they were. I'm, I'm not sure that they actually are the 28th best defense. They might be. It's They seem to be able to turn it on exactly at the moment they need to and get it done. And I think even this year, Michael Malone has had a couple freakouts, you know, in, in wins and even in winning streaks, four games in a row, and Malone's in the presser, you know, losing his mind. And I think even he is sort of, I don't want to say resigned to, but at least understanding that this team picks the spots of where and when they play defense. And when they do, it looks really good, as it did against Memphis the other night. So that's the first part. But I will say the most interesting thing, when I came on your show over the summer and we were talking about Denver's defensive upside, championship defensive upside, we talked about Bruce Brown replacing Michael Porter. And we just got a three- or four-week sample of that with Michael Porter out with the heel injury, which he'll return tomorrow night. But the thing that I noticed – and and that, that lineup actually was good overall, but bad defensively in large part, in my opinion, because you were going to a small lineup with Bruce Brown at small forward that just got out muscled and, and team shooting over. And when you play Jokic up at the level of screen of the screen and pick and roll, you need a lot of ground to cover on the backside, uh, you know, closing out on, on shooters and this or that. And I think what we're learning is length is as important as anything with Denver. And that is the most interesting thing that they tried and succeeded with against Memphis uh, two nights ago. Explain that, the length, what succeeded against Memphis two nights ago. So two nights ago, you lose Jamal Murray. He's out. I think he'll be back on Friday, but he he takes a game off, uh, maintenance. And you put Bruce Brown, who was playing small forward, six foot five or so playing small forward. You put him at point guard, and now he's guarding point guards. John Moran, he gets he gets a duty on. Then you get Christian Brown, who's six seven and and, and big, a, a thick-bodied guy into the small forward position. I think it is a regular large lineup that Denver had not been going to, and we had not seen that sort of size on the court. You're playing Vladko Chanchar at small forward. You close the game with Jeff Green at small forward. It's the longest lineup Denver had attempted really all season. And I think when you're bringing Jokic that far away from the rim and that far out, you get into the pain and everybody has to scramble and rotate and close out on the corner and rotate over. When you're doing that with guys who are 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", versus 6'8", 6'9", 6'9", it's just a meaningful difference. And I think that's something Denver hadn't gone to all year. And today, actually, at practice, Michael Malone made reference to it. We need to find length. We have length on the roster. We need to find ways to go to it more defensively. Um. It's a great point because the defenses that have played, let's call it, an, a, it's not blitzing, but up to the level of the screen, which is how Jokic himself wants to play. Right. Whether that's the correct answer for Jokic, the defender, is I think a subject of much debate within the Denver Nuggets. But that's how Jokic wants to play. When you're the MVP and you got to be comfortable, you get, you get a lot of leeway. The teams that have done that well, dating to the heat of prime LeBron and Wade, 
Even right. Minnesota last year kind of smoke and mirrors their way to a successful, we got a blitz with Carl Anthony to Towns because God knows he can't protect the rim. They had Anthony Edwards, they had Jaden McDaniels, they had a bunch of big, huge, long wings covering tons of ground. And LeBron and Wade, it was like having four right. guys on the court flying in, flying out. The Nuggets in that smaller group don't quite have that, um, which is why what I liked about that game is they played about six different kinds of defenses in that yep. game. When John Morant started splitting traps at the top they said all right you know what why did we sign bruce brown why did we get kcp one reason is they're really good at getting over screens well if they're really good at getting over screens and nicola is not the fastest dude at the point of attack let's drop him back like he's brooke lopez bet on these guys getting over screens so that those guys don't just have a free runway right at a ground bound plotting seven footer and it worked pretty well. And then they tried the thing about three times in that game that I've been waiting, waiting for them to try more often, which is just get Jokic the hell out of the pick and roll completely. Like, you'll see a lot of teams do with their centers. Okay, is there a bad wing on the Not bad, but is there just a spot-up right, standstill right. wing on the floor? Nicola, you go guard him. Right. We'll put Aaron Gordon on Steven Adams and right. switch some pick and rolls. And we saw that a few times in that game. And I sat there saying, here we go. This is the kind of variety I'm looking for. None of this to say Nikola Jokic is a bad defender because I actually don't think he is. We have litigated this issue to death on this podcast. I don't think he's as good as the advanced stat numbers paint him out to be. I don't think he's as bad as the caricature of him paints him out to be. But the Nuggets defense is better with him on the floor. It's always better with him on the floor. Right. Because if you look at the numbers, they get every rebound when he plays. Yep. They get many part. fewer rebounds when he doesn't. They force a ton of turnovers when he plays. They force like a laughably low number of turnovers when he doesn't. And even so, the best guards in the league are a tough matchup for him. So I think that variety is important. That schematic variety, whether the zone they tried will be a thing is, you know, we'll see. The schematic variety is important. And to your point about Christian Christian Brown. I'm never going to get it. It's Nobody just is. never going to. It's ne- my brain is never. My brain is going to say brum, 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 yeah. brown. It's just never going to happen. He's good. Um, but Michael Porter Jr. is 6'10 or 6'11. Yep. And he's coming back. And as you and I have talked about, for all his limitations as a defender, upright stance, flat footed, unclear interest level, at least at the beginning of his career. He's gotten pretty good at flying in and flying out, partly because he's huge. Yeah. And so, and obviously they need his shooting. This team does not take nearly enough threes. I think that will kick up when he comes back. I'm excited to, I, I just, I, I'm excited to see them try to sort of, it feels like they're starting the season again now, and I'm uh, excited to see them do it. Yeah. I, I want to go back to your defensive point first before moving to Michael Porter, and that is that I think with Denver, when you talk about Jokic being a good defender, he's really a great defender at 90% of it. It's the 10%. And I think when you talk about mixing up schemes, this is what you're talking about. Can we go to defensive? They're almost gimmicks. I don't want to, I don't think you can win 48 minutes playing this, the zones that they go to and putting Jokic on a guy in the court. You can't do that, but it's can you defend well? And then when a team tries to say, okay, we're going to put you in the high pick and roll and do this or that, do you have things that you've worked on all season that now you can counter with that? So now a team has to readjust on the fly. And can you sort of be malleable enough and have enough things in your pocket that'll work? I mean, they went to a box and one last night, really a diamond and one last night against Jaw for large periods. Again, a gimmick defense. 
but one that maybe you just have in your pocket that you're experienced enough at that in a playoff series, other teams are forced to go to their fourth, fifth, and sixth adjustments that they're less familiar with. So to me, this is Michael Malone and the coaching staff trying to come up with back pocket type defensive schemes that they're familiar enough with to get over the hump defensively in a playoff series. We'll see if it works. We'll see if it works. Look, there are only like their two core lineups are awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have faith in Bruce Brown off the bench. I think Christian Brown's good. I think Jeff Green is good. They should get four points for every Jeff Green Statue of Liberty dunk. Like the, it should just be worth four points because That's, it's it's yeah. it, it's becoming the most exciting nerd moment in basketball. You see it coming five steps away, and he's still going up and up and up. He's got the arm extended, and and no one gets out of his way. It's always on somebody's face. It should be worth four points. You never see it coming. You know the craziest stat? Jeff Green, I think he's 35 years old. He had a career high in dunks last year. He's on pace to match it this year. Somehow he is, and same goes for Aaron Gordon. Like the paints opened up for Denver, and then you get out. I don't of the think break Aaron. I don't think Aaron Gordon's missed a shot the entire year. It just <laughs> it seems like he hasn't missed, and he has. He must lead the league in get the ball right under the rim, yep, pump yep. fake, get blocked, and then rise up again and just angrily dunk and scream on the surrounding defenders like yep. a superhero and just pop out of the fray. He's been amazing. No Jeremy Grant regret in Denver, by the way. No, they they respect Jeremy Grant. They respect the player he's become. No Jeremy Grant regret. Yeah. Um, here, here are the only questions that matter. Number one, can they build a top fifteen to twelve defense? TBD. Number yeah. two, can Michael Porter Jr. stay healthy? Like, who cares? That's a question any of us can answer. There's no, there's no yeah. analysis there. It either happens or it doesn't. Number three, and and let's stop here for a minute. If they're gonna win the championship. And and make no mistake, that's the goal internally with the Nuggets to win right. the championship. They're they they're the the idea that they're this cute team with this unusual MVP, that's over. Um Jamal Murray has to be, let's say, a top twenty to twenty five NBA player. Right. He's never been a top he's never been an all star. Right. He's never been at all he's never really been in the all NBA conversation. But at his best, right. he's sniffed that territory. Jamal Murray, since coming back from the ACL, which is a, a big injury, a long, a long return, you know, he's at like 17 and five on so-so shooting, 44%, 34% on threes. Has he been a top 50 player this year? Top 60 player? Right. Like he's got to be, he's not in the all-star conversation at all. Like there's no case for him to make the all-star game. He's, he, he's got to get back to true co-star level with Jokic. So... Tell me, as someone who watches this team every day and is around them all the time, yeah. what have you seen that's encouraging, not encouraging? Like, where are we going to be with Jamal Murray in three months? Well, we'll start here. If you look at, now we're starting to do the nerd thing, but if you look at the per minute basis, a per 36, he's actually right on line with what he's been for the previous four years. Almost within one point of every single season, 20 points, 4.3 uh, rebounds, 6.3 assists. It doesn't feel that high. way. Well, he's not playing as many minutes and the efficiency is below. I mean, he's a couple percentage points from the field and, and really in particular at the rim from where he was. But here's the thing. He, Jamal Murray has always been an inconsistent player. When you talk about everybody thinks, oh, it was the bubble where he made that leap. He actually had some pockets of leap in him throughout his career. You know, the previous two seasons where he'd go on a 10 game heater where he's scoring 30 a, a game and, and on efficiency. And we've actually seen that already, Zach, this year. In the two-man game between him, there have been three-game stretches, four-game stretches, fourth period of five games in a row, 
where those two guys just close the door on everybody because they score every single time and not just score, but they score in ways that make you think, yeah, they can do that every single time. So the peaks, I think we're starting to see little hints of those peaks again, but it's been interrupted once by COVID and then once again now by, by an injury. So it's kind of had this little ramp up, stop, ramp up, stop. But I think already we're starting to see the hints of that. Now you just need to get him on the court for 20, 30 games in a row to get him back into that peak shape that all-star players play in that I don't think he has reached at any point this season. Yeah, I I, be, I believe in Jamal Murray. I, I think when it's go time, he's going to be the player they need him to be in part because what he and Jokic have is so unique and so special and how they play off of each other. And I agree with you for stretches of the season. I even said this a month or so ago. You could see him beginning to realize, oh, I'm ja- I'm Jamal Murray again. You know, I-, I remember a game a month or two ago where, a month or so ago rather, where whatever team they were playing switched a big guy onto him and a big guy that shouldn't hang with Jamal Murray. Sure. Like, and the first couple times he was like, oh, I don't know, this guy's kind of big and big and scary. I'm going to pass it off. And then like the third or fourth time you could see him being like, wait a second. This dude, this dude is slow. I'm just going to get by him. I'm going to kill him with a step back. And it was like, all right, now Jamal Murray's coming again. And and so I, I have faith in that one. The defense one is TBD. How can we solve the just complete collapse of this team when Jokic is on the bench? Because you can just sit there and be like, well, it's only going to be eight minutes in the playoffs, eight, seven minutes in a big playoff game. No, you no. can't lose those, but you can't yeah. lose those by a point a minute in playoff games. You just can't. And... It seems like they've tried everything short of putting all the other starters on the floor when Jokic is on the bench, which is not something you're ever going to do really in the regular season. I'm on team Free Zeke Naji. That's in my column tomorrow too. Um, free Zeke. Um, and I, I, I want to, you know, I, I once talked about this with LeBron in Cleveland and the Cavs in the Love Kyrie LeBron era even when they had Love and Kyrie on the floor, were always bad when LeBron rested. And I remember someone with the Cavs right. told me, "It's just be- it's it, we think it's because when he's on the floor, the whole system is him. And yeah. no matter what, when you take him off the floor, we kind of just don't have a system to fall back on." And I was like, "Yeah, but you have Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love to fall back on." And you it you know you you look at the Warriors right the same thing with Curry right. year after year even when they had Durant their offense wasn't good when Curry was on the bench and it it makes me think that it is it makes me wonder about the theory that when your when your offense is built around this the greatest passing big man of all time and you take him off the floor nobody really knows what to do which is actually why. Bones Highland, who doesn't care who's on the floor. Bones Highland thinks he's the best player on the floor at all times. He's actually perfect for those minutes. But it made me think back. Didn't they get Mason Plumlee? They traded Yusuf Nurkic and a first-round pick. Not a G League first-round pick. An actual first-round pick with Yusuf Nurkic for Mason Plumlee. I I remember them telling me, well, Mason's a really good passer. We think that that will help us play the Jokic style when Jokic is on the bench. I I just kind of had forgotten about that. And it worked, by the way. And last year they had DeMarcus Cousins, who they picked up late in the season. And he's another guy that you can play in the post, play on the elbow, play at the top of the key. And their their second unit, which was atrocious all year, turned into a strength. Uh, even in the playoffs, it was a strength. So, uh, And then one other guy, by the way, that never really got a chance in Denver, but I wish would have, was Isaiah Hartenstein. He's a guy who's kind of floated around the NBA. It is, I don't think, a great player. But he was in Denver for a while, and he showed a little bit of that 
where if you're talking about 12 minutes a game, he might have been a good guy for that. But nonetheless, your point, you look at a team like Dallas, Luka Doncic is the system, but they've actually been good without him on the court. They've had some, you know, their plus minuses have actually survived and they've had some, some other things. So I think there's something to this theory. But I don't think I don't think it's unsolvable. I do think that you need an identity, and this is the biggest thing to me with Denver's second unit. There has been the second unit has consisted of any number of eight, nine guys. You know, stagger Jamal, stagger Michael Porter, try to play Zeke, try to play DeAndre, try to play Christian Brown, Davon Reed, Blacko Chanchar. I think Denver needs to commit to an identity there. Bones Highland is a great offensive player individually. It has not clicked for him as a floor runner for that group. The ball kind of sticks in his hands, which I think is fine, but when he's not making shots and when he's off his game, nothing else is happening. I think you need to find a lineup that works for him. And I actually think that that second unit needs to have a lot of hustle defense around bones and spread the court. They experimented in Memphis with playing KCP off the bench, a defensive player who can stand in the corner and open up space for bones. And it worked at least for one game. You get Michael Porter back. I think he's another guy that gives you a little bit more scoring punch, but you keep your defensive players. You said Zeke Naji. I agree with you. You keep some length out there and you keep some defensive players and you count on bones to try to score for you, but commit to an identity and commit to a group, I think is going to be a big part of seeing if they can get over the hump with the roster they have. I like it. Identity is the key word. They they just need they need something to hang their hat on, right? It's like you think back to some of the great bench units, Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. Like right. that was that was a clip. That was the bench unit. That was what they they stumbled upon it. Didn't work as well in the playoffs because neither of those two guys' games stood up as well in the playoffs, but certainly did enough to at the very least keep the Clippers afloat you know, on bench units in Denver's experiment bones is shooting 40% on 11 and a half threes per 36 minutes. I think that's the fifth most of anybody in the NBA and he's shooting 40% on him. I think you can, and a lot of those are deep, by the way, he likes the deep three as much as he likes the regular three. Denver has started to over the last two games, start setting those screens. Well, over up the logo, the way you do for Damian Lillard, he's so fast that if you're going to go under, he's comfortable taking a little bit of a long one. I know those can be unpalatable when he goes over three over four and a quarter, but Commit to that, and then teams will start chasing you over. They already saw that in Memphis where teams would go over the screen 30 feet from the basket, and he's getting downhill. He didn't finish against Memphis, and he needs to become a better finisher. But again, I think that's part of an identity that you can win with if you commit to it, and we know these are the types of shots we're looking for. It's it's the right identity is the right word and yeah bones is shooting 40 percent on threes is he shooting 40 percent on twos or is it still in the 30s <laughs> it, might, it might be somewhere right around there he's been really bad at the rim this year he, and, yeah, and by the way that. i wrote about this a couple weeks ago he's awful defensively just awful yeah. and he can't be awful he's never going to be good he can't just be a tire fire on every single thing that happens on the court and i like bones and i like bones and i warn people before the season everyone who's predicting he wins six man of the year is getting a little over their skis he's the second year so true on a contending team, settled down, but he's good. Um, okay, so like, let's zoom out. Where, where, how you feeling? Like, they've played the third easiest schedule in the league, although more road than home. Best record in the West. Talked about the point differential. Talked about the guys who have been in and out of the lineup. And you go through the West. The Warriors are eleventh. Lakers stink. Clippers yeah. are fifth, scrapping along. Pelicans on a losing streak. Grizzlies, you just beat. Dallas is a mess. We can go on and on. I mean, sure. Are, are they? Do you feel like they're maybe the favorite? Like how, oh. how 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 do Denver people feel right now? 
It's been a, I think it's been hard to be too encouraged by the team because of that 28th defense. It's felt a little bit like waiting for the season to start for them. And it's funny that you referenced, you know, it starts now you get Murray and Porter back. It feels like a reset in Denver. We kind of joke, although we're also being serious. You recall back in 2016, the December 15th holiday that we invented. I know. The, the, the yoke, does it have a name yet? Yokemas. We call it Yokemas. That's right. I saw and, Katie Wingy, who's wonderful yeah. on the broadcast, tweet about Yokemas. Tell the people what Yokemas is. Yokemas is a celebration of when the Denver Nuggets decided to put Jokic into the starting lineup and basically said, this is our guy. We're building around him. It happened his sophomore season, December 15th. And the Nuggets went on a run. At that moment, the, the, the team found their identity and, and they just started to, you started to say, okay, we're building something. Well, now we make a joke that every year Jokic comes into the season a little slow, just a little, doesn't seem quite as happy and motivated or whatever. And we always, well, you've been to Serbia. Now you see why. I see. I see. It's so true. You have to leave the horses. It takes about two months before you kind of get over it. But, um, Every year around this time, the Nuggets seem to get going, and you track it back. The Nuggets just got two wins after December 15th. Uh, Jokic is putting up 40 points, 27 rebounds, and 10 assists, and, and doing these things. And it feels like the Nuggets season really has hit this phase two, whatever you want to call it, this phase two. Uh, and now you get Jamal Murray and Michael Porter back. And by the way, you said they had the easiest schedule. I'm, these strength of schedule things are always funny because, I mean, how can, you're just trying to make an algorithm that gives you some kind of context. The Nuggets did not have two game. They had two stints of two game homestands all the way up until earlier this week. They had one game homestand, four on the road, one game, three on the road, one game, two on the road. Basically, their home stops were just a part of an extended road trip that they had been on for the entire season. To this date, they have played the fewest home games of anyone in the NBA. 13. So, so now I did the math a couple of days ago that they had something like 51 days in Denver and five nights on the road between a couple days ago and January 23rd. So this home heavy stretch to me is the part where they're either going to become galvanized. They're already number one in the West, but I think that this is the moment where they make the move. The defense starts to look cohesive. Jamal Murray starts to get better rest and starts to get in better shape and comes back. This is the moment in time where I think it will or won't happen for the nuggets to kind of start to show who they are. And by the way, they're in first place already and haven't quite hit that stride yet. So you ask me how I feel. I feel cautiously optimistic, noting that I haven't seen championship level defense for them outside of maybe two or three games all year. Yeah, it's funny. I had six teams in my inner circle of championship contenders before the season. Six, like, if they're healthy, they don't need anything else. They're in. They, they've. They're in this. They're in the upper room, like Vince Carter would say. Right. Three in the East and three in the West. And the three in the West were Golden State, the Clippers, and Denver. And so just by that logic, you would assume that I would consider Denver the favorite now because right. they're by far ahead of those three teams among those three teams in the West. Um, as I told Kevin Pelton before, he wrote a piece today where he would just kind of shrug his shoulders if you asked him who's going to win the West right now and probably pick the Grizzlies for today. Maybe next week that changes. I, I, I don't even know who I would pick, but I understand why he's picking the Grizzlies, and I think the Grizzlies are absolutely fearsome. I don't know why it's not Denver, though. And, like, I know the defense. We just talked about the defense. It's been limited and all that stuff. I know what this team is on offense. I think they can get to a good enough defense. I, I had them in my championship inner circle before the season, and and to me, they're they're still there, despite the defense being up and down, the health questions and all that. I think, 
I think they have enough, and they better have enough because they don't really have the means to make a trade of of. But I mean, if you're going to trade, if you trade good young players like Christian right. Brown, you can get anyone you want. Not anyone you want. You can get you can get a little upgrade. You can get a veteran upgrade or something. I don't think they should do that. I think they've got enough, man. I don't see why not. I think over the next four weeks, I'm not saying it's a certainty to happen, but I would not be surprised if over the next four weeks, the sentiment nationally on the Nuggets changes. I think this is a big stretch for them. It's tough games. They have good teams coming into town, including Phoenix, Portland Friday, Boston's coming to town before too long, but they're home games. And like I said, it's underappreciated. Denver went to San Diego for training camp because they don't have a facility for it. Then they went on the road to California for three preseason games. And then they've been on the road for two months. And I know this because here I am in Denver and they I never see them in practice. I never see them at home games because they're never here. They have an opportunity now to be home for a consistent stretch. They're getting guys back. And I just think it's going to make a big difference. If it doesn't, like I said, I think people will continue to count them out regardless of what their record is. But I suspect that they're going to have some marquee wins in their under their belt here between now and the end of January. Well, the Phoenix game is and we'll, this is a good place to stop. The Phoenix game is interesting because I don't know. I can't remember if Booker's playing or not. Booker's been out the last few games. All right. But, you know, Phoenix in the 2021 playoffs just sliced the Nuggets apart. Yeah. This absolutely beautiful pick and roll attack with two alpha ball handlers who can shoot pull up threes if you drop back, who can torture you if you come out too far. And just the Nuggets had no shot. No shot. Just Phoenix, just all the. Chris Paul kicks the bridges, bridges, drives, kicks the Cam Johnson, just over and over and over again. No shot. And it fueled the Jokic defense skepticism. And then you 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 kind of zoomed out of the pain, right? Zoomed out of the ugliness. You thought, wait a second. Okay, they didn't have Jamal Murray. Their injury riddled up and down. They're starting the they're who did they start? Austin Rivers and I can't remember who Paso else. Composo. Composo, that's right. And Jokic has just dragged them here. The entire regular season is absolutely out of gas. They don't have good defensive guards who can get over screens. Like there's an ecosystem there that is larger than Jokic that needed to be repaired that they could not repair then. Right. Well, it's been repaired now, mostly. Like it's it's not quite all the way repaired, but they've they've pivoted, they've got new guys, they have new ideas. And Phoenix was I don't know if it was it it, it that series was a low point for the Nuggets because I think they went into that series. Yeah, we're exhausted. We're fatigued. We're injured a little. We just beat a Portland team who, frankly, probably thinks they should have beat us. Right. And we came into that series thinking we had a shot. And we got rolled. And it was ugly. And it was embarrassing. And it had us asking fundamental questions about our identity. And they've largely kept the same core group, same coaches, same everything. It's only one game. I don't know right. if Devin Booker is going to play, but that's the kind of offense, much like the Warriors offense, that is an interesting test for them. I agree. I mean, I think everybody in Denver that that watches the Nuggets closely views Phoenix as this sort of test, this litmus test for them, as the one team that made them look like they weren't close. Even the Warriors last year, Denver was in those games in games three, four, and five. You lose in five games, read them to that what you will, but you were in the games. The Phoenix games were four blowouts. And then so I think you're right that that one – to me, and I think to a lot of people that watch the Nuggets closely, is one everybody's been waiting for to say, hey, let's see how they stack up this time with all of their pieces back. It's going to be a fun second half of the season. Um, I think they've got enough. I, I, I do think this is, a, this is a big year for them. And um, I think it's a big year for them. And I think, 
I, I let's put it this way. I pay a lot of attention to the back end of their rotation on a night to night basis. Who plays, who doesn't yeah. play is very, very interesting to me. Adam Morris, um, second to none covering the Nuggets. Uh, I hope to see you soon. Thank you for your time. Uh, enjoy, enjoy some home games. Enjoy some home games for the Denver Nuggets, some sustained home games. Thank you, sir. You know what? I will do that. Have a good uh, holiday season, Zach. You too.